You're listening to a podcast by Abide Church and Pastor Dan DeBell in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We pray this podcast helps you live, love, and look more like Jesus this week. Enjoy the message. You know, this past week in our country has been a wild week. Um, when you look around, you see everything that's going on, and we see the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is something that if you're a believer, you should be rejoicing and you should be celebrating. Um, but I, I realize this, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we also realize that um, the world is looking at the church. The world is watching the church to see how will the church respond, because the church has been praying for 50 years. We've been praying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in our country as it is in heaven. And finally, after 50 years, that prayer has been answered, which is a good thing. But also, we also realize that there, there's going to be work to do. There's going to be things that we need to make sure that we are responding in an appropriate way. We're responding in a way that we celebrate that God still answers prayer. We, celebra- or we respond in a way that we are showing love to people that are confused, that people that maybe they don't understand God's will or his heart behind this issue. And so today, I just want to make abundantly clear God's heart on this issue and what's going on in our nation. In order to do that, what I, I did is something a little different for me is I simply wrote a, a statement that I'm going to read. I don't normally just read uh, word for word, but I feel like today I want to make it abundantly clear. And I feel like God's given me some specific verbiage that I want to use today. And so if you'll bear with me for just a second, I'm going to read this statement and then we're going to dive into what God's put on our heart to share uh, with you today. This past week, The Supreme Court made a ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade, and the church rejoices in this decision. Obviously, this is an unpopular decision with the modern culture, and there will be many people in our lives who criticize us for celebrating life. In fact, I have my very own family members who have made the statement that if you're celebrating this decision, then you can just go blank yourself. And it's in these moments that make Jesus' words in Matthew 10 abundantly clear. Here Jesus states in verse 34, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword of division between belief and unbelief. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household when one believes and another does not. You see, the world hates righteousness, but the church of Jesus must stand for it. The world hates righteousness, but the church of Jesus must stand for it. Can I tell you, my wife Leslie and I are the parents of three children. One that is here on this earth and two that are in heaven. In the winter of 2020 and in the spring of 2021, we experienced back-to-back ectopic pregnancies. The babies we lost were not just clumps of cells or lifeless things. According to God's word, they were individual beings known by God himself. That's why in Genesis 1, it says that we were created in the very image and the likeness of the almighty God. In Psalm 139, it says we were knit together in our mother's wombs and we were wonderfully made by God. Psalm 127 says that children are an inheritance from the Lord. They are not an inconvenience. They're not a roadblock to our careers, 
a distraction, or a burdensome work. In fact, biblically, they are our most important work. Let me be clear. Abortion is immoral, and it's murder. It always has been, and it always will be. That's why we see in Exodus 21, even from the earliest text in God's word in Exodus 21, it shows us this fact in stating that anyone who strikes a pregnant woman causing the unborn child to die is deserving of death himself. Showing us that truly the baby, the unborn baby was alive for it is a life for a life. Abortion isn't wrong because a political party says it's wrong. Abortion is wrong because the Bible says that mankind is God's masterpiece. So abortion takes a sculpture God is forming and it rips it up before it ever has the chance to see the light of day. One pastor said it this way and I agree. He said the abortion is the reverse of communion. Instead of his body being broken for us, it is the breaking of children's bodies on our behalf. Abortion is the reverse of the atonement. Instead of his blood being shed for our sins, we ask the next generation to shed their blood for our convenience. I know this. Even though our nation has blood on its hands, we serve a God whose blood is stronger, whose love is deeper, and whose power is greater. So the question arises, what if you've had an abortion? What if you've supported abortion? What if you've aided in abortion? What if you have financially supported or backed abortions in the past? Can I tell you, I have great news for you today. God's grace and his forgiveness is enough to cleanse you and to set you in right standing with a holy God. For even our heavenly father knows what it's like to lose a son. And if you've lost a baby, you can rest assured that you will see them again. They are safe in the arms of Jesus, and one day you will hold them again. We cannot afford, though, to be a church or a people that is pro-life in word only. We must back it with action. It's easy to talk about righteousness without doing something about it. For the Bible says, faith without works is dead. And that is why today I'm announcing our financial commitment as a church to partner with crisis pregnancy centers in our very city here in Tulsa. In fact, one of the ones that we're gonna be partnering with is called Crisis Pregnancy Outreach right here in Tulsa. So a percentage of every dollar that's given to Abide Church every month will go directly to helping mothers, fathers, families in crisis situations, and especially with their unplanned pregnancies. Crisis Pregnancy Outreach provides free resources like classes, clothing, childcare equipment, medical care, mentorships, school, job, and relocation assistance, and an opportunity to, to find wholeness in a secure environment. Let me remind all of us that the local church is the hope of the world. Christians adopt, adopt at the highest rate of any community. In fact, for every abortion clinic in existence, Christians operate at least two pregnancy resource centers. There is no doubt Christians are on the front lines of helping families in need, and that is how it should be. We are honored as a church to play a part in this effort. And so let me tell you, as you give faithfully of your tithe and your offering each month, you can be sure that you are helping in this fight for life. 
And if you want to give above and beyond your regular tithe and offering, if you want to give directly to Crisis Pregnancy Outreach, you can give directly on their website or you can give to our Love Your Neighbor Fund on our website. And 100% of everything given to the Love Your Neighbor Fund through this month and through the month of July, 100% of it will go directly to Crisis Pregnancy Outreach and will go directly to helping families in need. At this moment in history, the church cannot afford to be silent. The church cannot afford to stand back whenever God has answered a prayer and God's will has been done in our, in our nation, in our country. And so today, as we rejoice in celebrating Roe v. Wade being overturned, we also realize that we have a job to do. It's good to celebrate, but we also remember we got to put some feet to our faith. And that's why we're going to be partnering with crisis pregnancy centers across our city. You know, today we're going to be talking about the cost of discipleship. And it's amazing that God put this message on my heart earlier in the week before Roe v. Wade was ever overturned. We knew that it was a probably coming. We didn't know when it was coming, but God put this message on my heart. And I think you're going to see today how it goes hand in hand with these moments in history. When, whenever um, something happens and the culture groans, the culture rejects it, the culture does not celebrate a decision like this, but the Christians do. And so we have this tension of, we want to be loving to our neighbor, but how do we respond? How do we follow Jesus during difficult times? tense, stressful times. How do we do that? And so today we're going to look at it from the words of Jesus himself. And he speaks some very black and white uh, verbiage here. So let's read a passage together. It's found in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. It says this, it says, a large crowd was following Jesus and he turned around and he said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and your mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and they couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Here's verse 34. He says, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. <laughs> it is thrown away. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. And that is exactly where we are today. Lord, we want to understand your word. Lord, we have ears to hear. Help us understand these seemingly harsh statements from our Lord and Savior, Jesus himself. Help us understand your will, how we can apply this to our life today. And the first thing we see and what Jesus says here is number one, if you're taking notes, fill in the blank, is this. He says you, you need to check your priorities. Check 
your priorities. I don't know if you know this or not. I think you can probably can tell, but in America, we have a priority issue. (laughs) We have put several things, many things. We have so much stuff on our plate. We're so busy. We don't know what's the most important. We don't believe our families are most important. We we don't think church is most important. We have our, our jobs. We have our hobbies. We have our entertainment all mixed into the number one spot. And it can so easily happen in America. But let's look back at what Jesus said. Number one, he said, check your priorities. In in verse 26, Luke 14, 26, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, even your own life. He's not telling us to hate everyone else. He's not telling us to hate our families. He's saying, by comparison, he said, it should be so abundantly clear that I am number one in your life. That when people look at you, they they see that you are extreme on Jesus. You are a a fanatic on Jesus. You are um, to to the the, the extra on Jesus. So much so above even your own life, your own comfort, your own family. He says, make sure you need to see that I am number one in your life. Jesus is careful to add that there is more to being a disciple than just accepting an invitation. You see, I think sometimes in, in the modern church, that's what we do. We, we limit following Jesus to just saying a prayer and an invitation one time. You see, Jesus is, he is Savior and he is Lord. That's the goal. You see, many people accept Jesus as their Savior. Lord, save me from my sin. And he will answer that prayer. But can I tell you, he, he, his will for you is that he would be your Lord. That means that he's number one, that you've submitted your life to his will and whatever he wants to do in your life, you say, yes, sir, and you walk in obedience to his word. But you see, many times we just say, Lord, save me. Then we go back to our old ways and we go back to our old sin. And then whenever we, 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 we find ourselves in a mess again, we come back to Jesus. Lord, save me again. And Jesus is saying, I want to be more than your savior. He says, I am your savior, yes. But he says, my desire is to be your Lord. That means that you follow me and I am number one and you submit your life to his will. And so the question is who or what has first place in your life? If you can answer that honestly, you can look back at your week and if you logged your time everywhere that you went, you would be able to find out who or what has first place in my life. Even back in the original 10 commandments that we see in Exodus 20, God says, you must not have any other God but me. He says, don't have anything else in that number one spot. He says, that spot is for me. But can I tell you, the main reason marriages fail, addictions develop, bitterness roots itself in people or division happens in families is because people allow someone or something else to be on God's throne. Let me say it again. (laughs) The main reason marriages fail, addictions develop, bitterness roots itself or division happens in families is because people allow someone or something else to be on God's throne. I'm not talking about God's throne in heaven. God doesn't allow anything else on his throne in heaven. I'm talking about the throne of our hearts. We've allowed someone, something else to come in. And in doing so, God will be second to no one. In doing so, God goes hands off and he says, if that's how you want to walk, you can walk that way. I've shown you in my word that that way is going to lead to destruction. But if that's what you want to do, you can do that. And he goes hands off. But this is why so many times crisis and addiction and division happens is because we put something else there. One of, the, one of the easiest ways to look at this is simply by looking at church attendance. Right? I know I've talked about this quite a bit over the last six months or so, but the average church attendance in America is once every four to six weeks. 
once every four to six weeks. This is a great uh, uh, symbol or a great uh, revealing factor that we don't have a priority on the things of God. In fact, I would say we let other things dictate our participation in godly commands. Many times people let other things dictate their participation in godly commands. God tells us that church and gathering and assembling is important. It is vital for your Christian walk. You must be in community if you're gonna walk a victorious life in Christ. But can I tell you, so many times I talk to people and what do they do? Well, they always, every week they have the question, are we going to church this Sunday? Can I tell you something? (laughs) Growing up, uh, that wasn't a question. Uh, anybody else, you know what I'm talking about? That wasn't a question. Like we were, if the doors were open, we were there, right? Like old school, we were, we were there Sunday morning. We were there Sunday night. We were the Sunday night service and we were there Wednesday night. Okay. And then if we had revival, we were there all those nights. If we had a prayer meeting, we were there for that night. Like we were there. We were in, in a part of church. And I, I my parents, I got to commend them for doing it right. Because we didn't, as kids, we didn't get burned out on church. When we showed up, my parents helped us be involved. They gave us ownership. They gave us responsibility to do. They gave us a, a chance and a things to, to own and to be a part of. And in doing so, I fell in love with the local church. I fell in love with the local church. But today, that is not so. Today, I talk to so many families and they let their kids' competitive sports dictate whether they're going to church on Sunday. They let their careers dictate how involved they are in church on Sunday. They ask their spouse every week, hey, are we going to church this Sunday? Can I tell you, that's not a question. If you're a believer, it shouldn't be a question that we're constantly asking. It should be, no, we are devoted people to the bride of Christ. The church is not just a great organized group that gets together that's a morally good group to be a part of. Can I tell you, it's the bride of Christ. It's more than an organization. It is the bride of Christ, which is the hope of the world. It is where God's spirit manifests every single Sunday. Let's give people the benefit of the doubt, okay? Let's give people the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they show up once a month, okay? Average uh, service time is what? It's about an hour long. Average service time is about an hour long. That's one hour a month, 12 hours a year. Can I tell you, there are 8,760 hours in the year. And we think (laughs) 12 hours is committed Can I tell you what is not? Imagine what that is saying and what that is speaking to the next generation. Imagine what that's saying to our kids and to our teenagers when we give God 12 hours out of 8,000 plus. Can I tell you, it shows them it's not that important. But why? Why is it important even even beyond biblically that it's a command? Statistically, this statistic is probably about six years old now, uh, maybe seven years old, so it might vary a little bit. But statistically, we see that 70% of kids that grow up in a Christian home are involved, uh, grow up in a Christian home and are involved in church, they grow up in in a Christian home, 70% of them will walk away from God when they go to college. 70%. But that number is cut in half and then some if those kids, those same kids have another adult mentor, Christian mentor in their life that is consistent and that is pouring into them and that is checking in with them and loving on them, it cuts that number, that percentage in half and then some down to 30% or even less. Can I tell you, where, where does that come from? It comes from right across the hall. Right across the hall, right now in our elementary room, our preschool, our nursery, those people in there are the other mentors in your kids' lives. 
They're the ones that are setting your kids up for success. Yes, you are too, but they're here to partner with you to cut down that 70%. So when they go out into the world, the world doesn't devour them. They can walk in boldness because they've had you at the local church and they've had other mentors in their life to say, hey, we love you. This is how you walk. This is how you worship. And that's why even down to our smallest babies, we teach them how to worship in our kids' classrooms every single Sunday. We're teaching the little ones, even the little babies. We put on worship songs. We show them how to raise their hands, how to engage in worship. In our elementary, we're teaching Bible stories and biblical principles and God's word so they know how to stand when they go out into the world. Can I tell you, if you're picking up your kids today, (laughs) tell those kids workers, thank you. Tell them thank you for pouring into your kids. We have the nerve to ask the question, well, why is our country going in such a horrible, sinful, evil direction? Why does culture feel okay to put uh, um, confusion into our kids' minds, sexual confusion into our kids' minds? Why does culture feel okay with putting things in, in kids' movies that are gonna point them away from the things of God? Can I tell you, it's because disciples and believers have failed to check their priorities. If we would get our priority back on Jesus and get our families in church together, Can I tell you, (laughs) culture would change. The next generation would be set up for success. That's number one, check your priorities. The second thing Jesus says is count the cost. He says, you better count the cost. In fact, let's look at it. Luke 14, uh, verse, uh, verse 27 here. He says, if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. Here's what's amazing. With the crowd that he is speaking to, Everyone in the crowd would have seen someone who was hung on a cross and crucified on a cross at this moment in history. They had seen probably hundreds, even thousands of people who had been crucified on the side of the roads. And so when Jesus says, carry your cross, when he says, pick up your cross, they knew that it led to death. In fact, if someone took up their cross, as Jesus was saying, that person never came back. It was a one-way journey. And so it should be with how we follow Jesus. Jesus said in another passage, he says, anyone that puts their hand to the plow and then turns back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is showing us, look, if you're going to walk with me, if you're going to follow me, it's all in. Don't play in between. Don't go halfway and then turn around. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. And he says, look, I'm telling you, pick up your cross for a reason because it's going to cost you something. And so that's why he says, count the cost. The question is this, am I willing to go the distance for my Lord no matter what? If it's going to cost me something, if I have to lay down that friendship, if I have to separate from that boyfriend or that girlfriend that is pulling me away from the things of God, if I have to walk away from a career or a job that is asking me to do things that is against God's word and I have to walk away, can I tell you, (laughs) it's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. And, and, and Paul knew this. Paul knew this when he wrote to Timothy. In fact, look at 2 Timothy 2, verses 8. Paul writes this. He says, Always remember that Jesus Christ is a descendant of King David. He was raised from the dead. This is the good news that I preach. And because I preach this good news, look, he says, Because I preach the good news, I am suffering and I have been chained like a criminal. But I love this. But the word of God cannot be chained. He said, So I am willing to endure anything. I'm willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. The question is, is that my attitude for my life? I'm willing to endure anything for Jesus. I'm willing to endure anything for the salvation of others. 
Is that my attitude? Why do we need to count the cost? It's really pretty simple. Because the life of a disciple, the life of a believer, is not a life of static victory. We like to think that it is. Like, I'm going to make Jesus the Lord of my life, and then uh, I'm going to go home this afternoon. I'm going to turn on some golf. I'm going to prop my feet up. I'm never going to have any issues for the rest of my life. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up. There's going to be a million dollars in my bank account, and man, I'm going to be set. I'm going to be good to go. Static victory for the rest of my life. That's not how it works. The life of a disciple is from victory to victory. A victory to victory. But can I tell you, you can't have victory without a battle. So truthfully, the life of a disciple is from battle to battle. And in fact, you may feel like, oh, I don't know if I want that. That feels a little discouraging. Can I tell you, do not be discouraged in the fact that there will be battles, there will be trouble in this age. Because even Jesus said in John 16, he said, in the world, you have tribulation, you have distress, you have suffering, He said, but be courageous. This is the Amplified. He said, be confident, be undaunted, be filled with joy. I have overcome the world. I love this. He says, my conquest is accomplished. My victory is abiding. Come on, that's good. That's so good. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, look, you need to count the cost. You need to count the cost. But he says, when you abide in me, when you follow me closely, what does abide mean? It means to be, remain as one. You remain close with him, intimate with him. He said, when you pursue after me, when you put me first in your life above everything else, when you abide in Jesus, his victory abides in you. Come on, let me say that again. When you abide in Jesus, his victory abides in you. So though you may face battle, though you may face persecution, though you may face distress or suffering, can I tell you, this is why Paul said, look, I can endure anything and I will endure anything if it means helping, if it means serving, if it means following Jesus, I'm in no matter what. But can I tell you, let me remind you, when you abide in Jesus, his victory abides in you. And let me tell you, Following Jesus will cost you something. But my pastor growing up, he always said this. He said, with every death in Christ, there is, it is closely followed by a glorious resurrection. For every death in Christ, it is followed by a glorious resurrection. So whatever you give up to Jesus, he will multiply it and bring it back to you better than you laid it down. If you have to lay down a friendship, if you have to lay down that relationship with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, if you have to walk away from that career that you loved at one time, but they're asking you to do things that is opposite of God's word, if you have to lay it down, if you have to die to it, meaning you put it in the ground and you leave it and you walk away from it, if it's in Christ, if it is for him and it's for his glory, he will, he will bring it back to life in a way that is even better than before. Every death in Christ is followed by a glorious resurrection, but we gotta count the cost because it is from battle to battle, from victory to victory, but his victory abides in us. Here's the last one. He says, you need to choose to be real salt. Choose to be real salt. Look at Luke 14, verse 34. He said, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. <laughs> I love that. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. This comparison of real salt versus fake salt is what sparked this entire passage of scripture to be written down and to be said. Because here's what happened. Jesus turned around and he sees a huge crowd, which a lot of people would say, this is awesome. Look at how many people are following Jesus. Look at all these disciples that are following Jesus that want to be like him, that want to see what he's doing in his life. Look at all of these people. 
But Jesus turns around and he doesn't see real, genuine disciples. He sees a lot of not real salt of the earth. He sees a lot of fake counterfeit salt of the earth. We know this because Jesus saw a crowd of fake salt and he addressed it. If Jesus would have turned around and he saw a crowd of real salt, real disciples who were all in for him, who would have followed him to the end of the age, if he would have saw real salt, he would have applauded it. He addressed it. He addressed the issue. He did not applaud the crowd. Let me show you this example here. Up here, I have two containers of salt. This first one is a big container here, but let's pretend this is, this is actual salt, but let's pretend that this container here is a container of fake salt. It looks like salt. It has salt on the outside. It says it right here on the package, but inside it's flavorless. If you were to add this to your meal this afternoon, you would taste nothing. Maybe you would taste the texture, but you wouldn't taste the flavor. But in this hand, I have one tiny packet of real salt that has flavor that brings good things to your meal. This afternoon, when you go eat, which one would you prefer to add to your food, to add to your plate? A bunch of this fake salt? Well, I'm gonna put some on here and I don't taste any different, so I'm just gonna add some more and add some more and add some more until you've ruined the entire meal. Or would you just say, just give me a pinch of real salt because I know it's gonna add real flavor. We take the real salt any day. Can I tell you, In the modern church, if we're not careful, we can be so fascinated in pursuing a large crowd of fake salt and it says salt on it and it looks like salt and there's a lot of people and there's a lot of it, but it has no flavor. Can I tell you, we may get excited about a lot of people or a huge crowd, but Jesus is looking for real, not fake. Jesus is looking around and when he turns around, he sees this huge crowd. He's not looking at, whoa, look at the number of people. He's saying, but how many have the real stuff? How many actually taste, act, look like me? That's what he's looking for. Salt is only useful when it has the nature of salt. A Christian is only useful when he or she has the nature of Christ. Come on, hear me today. Let me say it again. Salt is only useful when it has the nature of salt. A Christian is only useful when he or she has the nature of Christ. We cannot afford to be a large group of fake salt. The world needs real salt. The world needs real salt. And can I tell you, in America, it's easy And it's convenient to be a Christian in America. In some ways, I really think that is the issue. We've made it so convenient. We've made church a huge easy button. Now, we should make it easy to come to Jesus, absolutely. However, I think we've turned even our online church attendance, we've turned uh, the way we do church even as this easy button where it's so passive, where we never ask people to do things that Jesus asked people to do. We never ask anyone to count the cost. We never ask anyone to be bold. We never ask anyone to get out of their comfort zone. When that's all that Jesus did is he said, don't just say a prayer and then walk out and go back to your old life. He said, no, say a prayer and then make me the Lord of your life. Pick up your cross and follow me. My victory will be with you, but you are going to face some hardships. You're going to face some resistance from a spiritual enemy, but I will be with you and I will help you as you go. Easy, convenient Christianity produces lukewarm Christians. And Jesus has a lot to say about lukewarm Christianity, static Christianity. And in fact, he says that it makes him nauseous. This is why in Revelation, at the end of God's word, it says this, Revelation 3, Jesus says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. 
So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is showing us that lukewarm Christianity, flavorless salt, what does it do? It turns Jesus' stomach. It literally makes him nauseous to the point of vomiting it out of his mouth. (laughs) That's what he says. That's what God, that's red letters. That's what Jesus said. We must choose daily to be real salt. Not in looks alone, but in flavor and in distinctiveness. A pinch of salt changes the flavor of a meal. And so it should be with us. A pinch of salt, one small packet can change an entire plate, an entire, an entire meal in the flavor of it. And so it should be with us. When I go to work, I should change the flavor of my workplace. When I hang out with my friends, I should change the flavor of our conversations. When I'm with my family, I should change the flavor of the atmosphere of my home when I'm with them. In order to be real salt, what do we have to do? Is it something super difficult? Is it a 12-week class that I got to be a part of? No, it's not. It's a daily decision to cling to Jesus and to conform wholly to his example. What is it? It's abiding. Today, Jesus, I'm going to make you first in my life. I'm going to stay close with you. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship you today throughout my day. And in doing so, it sets me apart to live, love, and look like Jesus. That's what we're here to do. In God's word, we see time and time again examples of of Old Testament and New Testament examples of people, heroes of the faith, who followed Jesus, followed God no matter what. Let's look at Moses. What did Moses do? He turned his back on riches, on fame, and on power to follow and obey God. Daniel, what did he do? He risked his life just to pray to God, just to talk to God. He risked his life. Paul, what happened to him? Five times he received 40 stripes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he suffered shipwreck. And what did he write? He said this, in cold and in nakedness, I've followed Jesus. That's got to be our heart. That's got to be our perspective that no matter what, Lord, I will count the cost. I will make a priority on you. I'm going to count the cost. I will lay down anything that you ask me to. And Lord, I'm going to choose to be real salt. Can I tell you, the world doesn't need a bunch of fake salt Christians walking around. It needs real salt. Imagine in our culture, in our churches, if we could turn from a lot of fake salt and just a little real salt, what if we could flip the script? What if the majority of our churches, right? Imagine how far this, even in the natural, would go. This container of salt, a little bit here. This will go for weeks and months and different meals and different plates. This will go for a long time because it doesn't take much to change the flavor of the meal. Can I tell you, so it could be with our churches. So it should be with the by church that the majority of us, as we get together, we should strive to be real salt because look at the impact a lot of salt can make. If a pinch can change everything, how much can an entire container of real salt change the world? Our world needs bold Christians. Our world needs bold Christians. Our world isn't looking for passive Christians. Our world isn't, isn't looking for Christians who agree with them because in the deepest part of their spirit, they are longing for a loving heavenly father and that's our job to introduce them to him. The world is looking for, we have got to be real salt, bold, strong, confident, unapologetic, distinct. We stand out in the culture not here to bash anybody over the head, not here to condemn anyone to hell. Our job is to represent Jesus well. And as we get closer and closer to Jesus returning to this earth, what do we do? We check our priorities. Is God number one in my life? I need to count the costs. Is there anything in my life that Jesus is saying, will you lay that down? 
Will you put that burden at my feet? Will you cut off that relationship so you can walk closer with me? And then finally, what do we do? We've got to choose daily to be real salt. We will not be salt in looks alone because we wear Christian shirts or something like that. No, we will choose to be real salt in flavor and in distinctiveness. And if we'll do that, can I tell you, friends, we can change the world. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, today, I just take a moment. I just pray, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us receive this word? Would you help us put it deep in our heart, Lord? Would you help us truly check our priorities? Is there anything in our lives that has been number one that should not be number one? Lord, is there anything in our lives that we need to move or eliminate so that you can take us further in relationship with you? Lord, would you help us count the cost? Would you help us make sure that no matter what comes our way, that we have a reminder of your Holy Spirit, who's our comforter, who's our helper in times of trouble. You're an ever-present help in time of need, no matter what we face. But I thank you that your word says when we abide in you, your victory abides in us. And Lord, today we choose as a church to be real salt. We don't want to be a large group of fake salt. We want to be real salt that goes the distance and changes the flavor of our community, of our world, of our families, and of our life. And God, we love you. We dedicate everything to you. It's all about you, and it's all about glorifying your name. And God, I just thank you that you are helping us live, love, and look more like you this week. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Abide Church podcast. If you'd like to partner with us financially, or if you're in the Tulsa area and would like to attend our weekly gathering, you can check out AbideChurch.com.